Hi everyone, welcome to the Tech Entrepreneur on a Mission podcast. My name is Ton Dobbe and I'm the founder of Value Inspiration and the author of The Remarkable Effect. I envision a world where every B2B SaaS startup succeeds because they're creating software that customers would miss if they were gone. And here's why. Research consistently shows that 90% of all startups fail, and that's bad. What's worse, however, is that 75% of SaaS scale-ups fail, companies that are supposed to have product market fit. Far too few scale-ups create the traction they aspire for and fail for the wrong reasons. And I believe this should stop, and hence I created my business. And the goal that I have with this podcast is twofold. First, to inspire new forms of value creation by sharing compelling ideas and stories about the potential that we can unlock when technology and people blend in the right way. Secondly, share experiences from tech entrepreneurs like you about what it requires to create a remarkable software business and how to overcome the roadblocks to do so. The guest on my podcast today is Devin Bramhall, former CEO of Animals. What I learned was it was more about that consistency and reminding people of like what the goal is that we're trying to accomplish and therefore establishing that focus that keeps people relaxed. This is Devin. She's the former CEO of Animals, a leading content marketing agency for B2B SaaS companies. Storytelling is at the root of Devin's passion for marketing. She founded the Master Slam, a poetry slam style debate for startups and tech. She's also a tech organizer and speaker trainer and has competed in several storytelling competitions. In September 22, she posted a vulnerable LinkedIn post about stepping down as a CEO, thereby sharing her lessons learned not only to survive the company, but actually growing it stronger due to the pandemic and recent crisis. And this inspired me, and hence I invited Devin to my podcast. We explored the big lessons learned as she took over the role of CEO at Animals, and what it took to grow the business by 200% in just two years as the pandemic and economic crisis kicked in. She shares what appear to be really important to keep and what not to keep, thereby reflecting on her misjudgments and traps that she fell into without even realizing. And by listening to this podcast, you will learn five things. Firstly, what's your number one job as a CEO in a period of crisis? Second thing, the importance of setting first principles and then sticking to them. Thirdly, how to avoid making fear-based decisions or becoming overconfident. Fourthly, how to keep everyone focused and committed when times are tough. And lastly, what to do or avoid doing in marketing to make an impact. So hi Devin, thank you for making the time available today and being the guest on the podcast. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. And you know, the reason why I invited you is because I saw your blog post or your post on LinkedIn where you announced that you were going to leave the company you used to work for animals. It inspired me, it triggered me. And yeah, the assessment of what you've learned, yeah, just struck with me. And hence I wanted to interview you, particularly also to get your story around what we can learn from all your lessons being the CEO of animals, around like what happened in the pandemic and the crisis that followed after that. Uh, and what can we learn to not like the story of not only bouncing back from adversity, but actually coming out stronger. Yeah, no, it was a wild ride. So I am the former CEO of animals. I joined in March of 2018 as like a director or VP of marketing. It was sort of, my title was sort of irrelevant because at the time when I joined the founder and then CEO Walter, you know, has had like an 18 person content marketing agency. 
And he hired myself and Haley Bryant, who was head of customer service at the time. And we both came in and said, wow, great bones, but there is, it needs some structure and guardrails. And so, you know, her and I, despite whatever our titles were, really just came in and started running the company. And so, you know, we sort of built what I ended up taking over in 2020. And Walter, to his credit, was really self-reflective and honest with himself. And he said, hey, like, I don't really want to run companies. I like to start companies. I like to support founders and entrepreneurs. And so he gave us a lot of kind of space to make change and evolve the company. And I think it was 2019 when in the summer we had a leadership offsite and, you know, Walter went around the room, just the senior leadership, which is, you know, probably five of us. And he said, what do you want from your career? And everyone went around the room and he got to me and I pointed right at him and I was like, I want your job. And a few months later, I think it was that fall of 2019, he gave us his intention to, you know, create a holding company, like really follow his dream of starting multiple companies. Jimmy Daly, who was really like another, I think I count him and several other of us among like the sort of co-founders of the next generation of animals. He went with Walter and started another company. And then Walter said, Devin, you CEO, Haley, you COO. And so all was well and good, right? I had this beautiful plan to announce in 2020 that I was going to be CEO of this company. I mean, my transition plan and my beautiful announcement plan, it was like, we were going to announce in September, 2020. And I was going to launch like three consecutive new services and products and just be like a total badass, right? And then the pandemic hit in and we started to see the signals, obviously in February, like everybody else. And I remember going to Walter and saying, you know, cause I had really advocated for a slow transition. I wasn't trying to like snatch this. I was like, I want to be ready. I want to do it well, you know? And I looked at him and I said, Walter, the team's going to need someone to get them through this. And I was like, you're not the guy. I was like, that's not. And so we, and again, to his credit, right. I don't think he even wanted to, he's like, that's not my strength. He's tons of strengths that make him a unicorn, but they are not that one thing. And so, but it was mine. And that's why he said, you know, here. So we ended up officially making the transition in March of 2020. So that's when I took over as CEO. We intentionally waited to tell the outside world until several months later, because lots of reasons, you don't want to add tumult to our customers on top of the pandemic, et cetera, et cetera. So like we kept it quiet, but internally the team all reported to me and that went over really well. So that's the gist of it. <laughs> well, what a story. And I mean, yeah, you can see it happening and all the plans that you have like suddenly like changed dramatically. So when that happened, like, what did you think? What did you do? Because I saw there's a whole range of things in the, in the post itself. Like, but for one thing, you prevented layoffs. Very good thing. What made you decide to prevent the layoffs? Because that's an easy, normally an easy cut if to survive. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, you know, I think as a business owner, so, you know, someone, CEO with running a business, like you have to make hard decisions. And because your number one job is to protect the company, 
Like that's what a CEO does. They protect the company. And a CEO who's not a founder, it's very specifically that, right? That's your only job. And so that can present challenges that include doing things that you don't, you know, that hurt your heart and that will hurt other people's hearts, right? The really cool thing about my position was that the leadership team and our our now chairman, Walter, were all aligned in our mission not to lay people off. I mean, I remember getting on a call with Walter and Haley and I was like, he's like, I don't want to lay anybody off either. I don't want to do it. Because, you know, there's a, it's tough. You know, agencies have a reputation for, you know, hiring and firing based on yeah. customer, et cetera, et cetera. And we just, that's not the type of business we wanted to run. It wasn't. And so what we did instead was focused that's really hard on two things, I would say. One, our customer. We're like, our customer is going to be freaking out right now. So like, what can we do to step up and support them? And then two, how can we reallocate our resources to give our customers sort of extra support in this time? Because I think we lost a significant amount of revenue in like a very short period. I think it was like a hundred K in MRR in like six weeks. So our customers were hemorrhaging. Yeah. And so, and rightfully like we understood, right. It was like, they were freaking out. Nobody knew what to do. Looking back in time, we can kind of see what was about to happen, right? So it's like at first blush, everybody crisis, everybody starts letting go of their teams and their agencies, right? There's the easiest thing to get rid of. In the case of the pandemic, since there was so much uncertainty, the first thing they did right after was hire their agencies back. So people were really sort of hesitant in the beginning to hire full-time staff back which ended up being an opposite problem later, as everyone knows, because then everyone started quitting and they didn't have enough people. But in the very beginning, agencies came back first. And so we ended up, you know, I think by, let's see, there was during, in March and April, I was sending a weekly note to the team, showing them the numbers, showing them progress, like just really bringing them into the situation so that they felt like, like they were stakeholders. We weren't trying to pull the wool over the eyes. I was like, here are the numbers. You can see them. I would also include like a very long sort of heartfelt personal note to all of them at the jump. I got known as like the CEO that made them cry all the time, but like, not because I was being a jerk, but because I was like saying something, they're like, Oh, your notes, they made me cry so much. And then I'm like, here are the numbers. So it was like, you know, I was like, bring it in everybody, bring it in. Like we're in this together. I don't believe as companies, as families, but I do believe in like really taking ownership of your team during tough times so that they feel supported. So, you know, I think it was the first like, yeah. So it was like March until about May and then things started to turn around and that's when we started to have a great year. I think we almost doubled. Exactly. That's what I saw. You doubled, doubled revenue. And yeah, that shows, of course, that things bounce back. But the question at the end is, would that have happened? If you would have, well, if you didn't take those measures and that refocus from the start? Well, that's a great question. I don't know because I didn't do that. You know, this I did what I did, but I yeah. think, you know, what I saw is that the companies, both agencies and startups who were sober and focused during that time had the least amount of tumult. I think 
what happens, especially if you're a founder, and I think that I actually was in a unique position, a uniquely beneficial position. I was not the founder of this company. At the end of the day, this wasn't my money at stake. And so I think that gave me sort of like a sobriety of thinking where I'm like, it's not my shirt on the line. I cared about it like it was mine, but I didn't, there's something different in a founder's DNA than there is in someone. It's why I actually think the founders shouldn't run their own companies because they're can be kind of terrible at it because they're too biased, right? Like they just yeah, can't get yeah. out of their own way. I'm like having someone else. And that's why I think Walter was so brilliant. Like he was smart enough to know that like somebody else could probably do it better with his support, right? Like he was very much there. So anyhow, I think that like, you know, the focus that we had, the sort of singular focus, get through this, don't lay people off, made yeah. the decisions and what we need to do, very simple and obvious. It's like, you know, we tried for the PPP loan to make sure just to give us like, you know, okay, just to make sure we had that extra in case anything, you know, whatever, you know, focusing on new business. I was calling customers. I was asking them like, what are you worried about? Like, what's going on? What are you thinking about? What are you doing? And so, and the team, right? Support, like support your customers and your team. Those are the two most yeah, important yeah, yeah. So, you know, the answer is, I don't know, but I also think that like what we did wasn't that remarkable. It was, if you're thinking objectively, it was sort of obvious, like that's what you should be doing. So. Yeah. And I completely agree. What triggered me was kind of people that were in kind of startups and, and agencies that like yourself would did best were sober and focused. So the sober part is about taking the emotion out of the equation, right? Taking, like not making fear-based decisions. You wouldn't believe the, like, especially in my experience, and again, I don't criticize them for this. I totally understand why. But like, I think when you're a founder on the outside, it looks like you're being really brave and you are in a lot of ways because you're putting yourself on the line. But when you get behind the scenes, a lot of them make very fear-based decisions and times of crisis, you can't be, you can't act out of fear. You need to act out of sobriety. And that, like you said, a lack of emotion, it's really, to me, it's the, you can get through otherwise. Emotional people get through lots of things, but it's messy as hell and that affects your reputation. And I think that like, that's something that you don't want. And I would say the times in my experience as CEO, like there were times when I was emotional too. I encountered challenges, I guess. I never expected to affect, like, to affect me or ever to happen to me. And my emotions, every time... They just, they got in the way, they made a mess. Like they made the mess bigger. It's like, so. That's what I hear a lot as well. Take a step back and the world doesn't explode. What we should do in a situation where this was not there. Yeah, exactly. Another thing that you mentioned that I would like to kind of pick on a little bit is, yeah, the communication. And yeah, what specifically did you do in order to keep the team together and to make the bond stronger and for them to step up like the way they needed to step up in that situation? Yeah. So first was transparency. Absolutely. No one you need, like the task I had at hand was build trust, which I had already built over the past years. When Haley and I joined animals, like things got objectively better for employees. Cause we were like, wait, we need to be doing these basic things. So we were already seen as like team advocates, but still I'm a new, like I'm still technically taking on a new position. So, but I'd earned a lot already. And so just sort of continuing that thread of building trust, showing people, you know, transparency. And then I would say the other thing is, what is the word that I got known for? 
being more forthcoming with my own personal thoughts. So like, you know, writing these very personal notes to the team, talking about, you know, times when I was scared that week or the things that I was kind of struggling with, obviously you package them in a way that you're not like putting that on other people, but people could see I was a whole person. And I think that really, I know actually based on their reaction that that really helped. It felt like it was a form of bonding. And then the third thing is like doing a good, like showing results, like, sorry to say, but they speak for themselves and people, there was only so long that me being relatable and transparent was going to work if the company continued tanking. I had to turn things around. We had to turn things around because no matter what, people are going to look at me. And so that was, I think the third thing was like, just actually turning things around really quickly. And I didn't actually do it, right? It was a whole team effort. But since I am the face of the company and the team puts everything on me, like, that was my responsibility. So I think those three things were really important. And we were lucky. strong. We did. Let me make a small interruption here. Devin just outlined the secrets that pulled her company through the pandemic to not only survive it, but actually get stronger from it. Being forthcoming with your own personal thoughts, thereby being a whole person and creating bonding. And last but not least, showing results, turning things around quickly. It's a trade remarkable tech company's master. They focus on the essence. They measure their results by the impact they help their customers create. They create momentum by offering something valuable and desirable, something that everyone wants to be part of. And you can master these traits as well. And the first step, simply read my book. I've made the electronic version available for free. Just visit theremarkableeffect.com to grab your copy and inspiration will spark in the first 10 minutes. Back to the interview. Did you change anything in the strategy of how the company went to market? You know, for, of course, you first you get your traction as your you win new customers and you do things for them. In those type of situations, of course, everything changed for them as well. Did your portfolio change? Did your approach change? Style change? Whatever. Not really. I mean, the product that we offer was you know organic growth marketing. So like blog content, content strategy, SEO. And so I think like fundamentally those things still applied and actually kind of, you know, that was never going to be necessary, never stopped being necessary. I would say where we changed was understanding, like some customers might have needed to change their approach a little bit in the types of long form content they were writing or, and so I would say our strategies for them might've changed a little bit, but still within the realm of content marketing. And so it was more, you know, understanding what their situation was and adapting a little bit. But then, I mean, a lot of people were trying things like webinars at that time and changing the topics of what they were writing about. But I will say that there were a bunch of customers that thought like everybody thought they needed to write about like pandemic marketing and remote work and all that stuff. And we actually counseled several people against that. We're like, Hey, don't be too reactive. Like that has nothing to do with your company. Why are you trying to attract people who want to know, but like, that's not even your audience. Like, don't do that. So we actually ended up having to sort of temper people a little bit and say, Hey, don't like stay the course. This is what's so unbelievable to me. And it's been unbelievable this year too, where it's like, and it goes back to the fear response. It's like, people think they need to be so reactive. And a lot of times just staying the course or making like different, smaller adaptations are better, but you don't need to like 
completely change the topics that you write about, for example, on your blog, just because like an emergency is happening. Because whatever temporary traffic you capture for that is really, in many cases, just a vanity metric and isn't going to lead to new business anyway. So what's the point? If you're doing something different, do something dramatically different, shift your budget to a different form of marketing that may work or whatever, but don't, you know, don't change your topic. So I would say the biggest thing we did was sort of keep people on the rails with their strategy, do slightly different things that we believed in, like tactics, like webinars, for example, when that was really hot at that time, online events, et cetera, but fundamentally no, our product didn't change. And it, I don't think in a lot of cases it should. Like why, no, no. especially with, you know, it's so funny how, yeah, how people just, that reaction yeah. response, it can lead people astray in some cases, not all. Have you, um, you get a unique perspective. The audience that I, but this podcast is for is B2B SaaS owners, founders, CEOs, and the leadership team that work for them. You being a supplier to this niche and really being focused on that industry, what are your conclusions or your takeaways from what you've seen in that area in terms of the importance of content strategies? Yeah. I mean, they leaned hard on it at that time because even in that moment, and it was actually kind of encouraging to see, you know, what I recall were a lot of software companies. I mean, there were some layoffs, obviously, though I would say, gosh, and maybe I'm just remembering wrong, but like, I don't remember huge exoduses of people during the pandemic. What I saw was more of a hanging on and doubling down. And maybe I'm just remembering wrong, but it's nothing near what we're seeing now because I think that they could, I think potentially, I think what was clear in the pandemic was that more people were going to be consuming digital content very quickly because as soon as things started to get locked down, it's like, well, hold on a minute. Like no one can go anywhere. So like the internet is like everyone's lives now. And so what I saw was really people doubling down their content strategy and maybe re-examining what that content sort of recipe looked like. But it was really kind of a cool thing to see. I know a lot of these companies were panicking in the beginning, but when I talked to some of their like marketing leaders and these founders, like I just don't, I recall more like an intense focus. I don't know. Focus is probably the wrong word, but like it didn't, there wasn't as much of a sort of freak out as I have kind of been seeing lately in this new sort of challenging economic time, whatever you can call Uh it yet, not quite a recession, but it was actually kind of cool. And I think maybe tapped into something that, you know, founders are sort of naturally good at, which is like, reacting to something in a moment. It's almost like they thrive on this like crisis, you know what I mean? And so, you know, I was really encouraged by the amount of SaaS companies that were trying new types of content who were more interested in experimenting. You kind of like in that sense, they were sort of throwing the playbook out the window. So it was kind of actually, yeah, I haven't thought about this until now, but it was sort of a Renaissance moment where like suddenly people were really open in a way that like they aren't typically open with marketing teams, right? Like every marketer talks about how like a marketer is the one role that everyone in the company thinks they know how to do as well mm-hmm. as the marketer themselves, but they're all terrible at it, right? <laughs> None of them know what they're doing. And every marketer I know that's their like refrain. It's sort of their, you know, but in this time, like I saw founders jumping in and, you know, helping out with content, which is like always what we want. We're like, Will you be available for this thing? And like they jumped in and it was so cool. It's like, 
gosh, you know, I never reflected on it in this way before, but it was kind of a really cool time where something to keep. Yeah. 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 And the question is at the end, why do you then go to those normal situations again? Because one of the things you said in your post on LinkedIn is I became the CEO of Animals to evolve content marketing, which I believe has plateaued in B2B SaaS. Despite more tools, platforms, and types of content, our obsession with measuring, pre- measuring prevents the necessary creative risk that produce outsized impact. Have you yeah. seen that change? Oh, no, not at all. It got worse. The pandemic made content marketing worse because here's what happened. We had this like really cool moment where people are trying all this stuff and like whatever. And then we all started having a great time, right? Like there was like free money everywhere. I mean, animals, we had more demand than we knew what to do with. And so what happens is because these companies were experiencing such like somewhat easy growth, Mm -hmm. um, sort of artificial growth. Like they were just trying to capitalize on something that was already there. So it's like, they weren't for like, no one's forced to innovate until times are tough, right? Like yeah. innovation doesn't like, people aren't just like sitting around when, when the money's just like there to be collected. And it's just like, okay, well, let's just like bring in those leads. Let's just like get them here. It's like, you know, taking a, the dogs and corralling the sheep into the thing. You're like, oh my God, people aren't sheep. That's not what I meant. It was a really bad analogy, but that's, you know, it's like, you're just sort of funneling things in a direction. It's not all times are hard that people really start to innovate. And so, or like times of uncertainty when they don't really know things are new or whatever. So, you know, I think that content marketing is boring because we're just on the cusp of companies adopting it. Like there's still tons of companies that like, if you, there's still people in this world. When I say I'm in content marketing, people don't know what I'm talking about. Yeah. Like that is Like even at my dog park in Williamsburg, New York, which is like fresh as hell, right? It's like, they're not, you know, and so I think we've stopped short of like full adoption and the people that are, have adopted it, a lot of them are following playbooks still. People still believe in playbooks and I'm like, okay, but those playbooks aren't really working anymore because, you know, and so I think that content marketing was fundamentally a brand it's brand marketing. That's all it is yep. it's about building your brand. It's about bringing a community of people around your brand by helping them out. Right. If you're a customer support software, you want to help your, the people in the customer's world be better at customer support, provide better customer support. Right. And so you're going to provide education, build community, et cetera, around that. And because, you know, technology has evolved it's gotten easier to measure various content marketing activities, right? We've, you know, you can parse traffic and time on page in all kinds of different ways. You've got like, you know, search optimization and measuring engagement on social, et cetera, et cetera. And so that's useful if you're using it to optimize your creative approach and come up with new ways to, but if you're doing it just as like a, okay, we do this activity and we, it's like one-to-one we do write blog posts. We expect X amount of traffic growth. And I'm like, there's nothing inherently wrong with that. But if that's your only focus, then that's performance marketing and performance marketing is science in math. That's all it is. There is artwork involved, but that artwork is literally scientifically designed to get a click. So it's like, if that's the way we're measuring content, then it should be performance marketing and it can't be because it's organic. So it's like, you know what I mean? They're doing it. They're measuring it in the wrong ways. 
into to the wrong end. And I think what that's done is it's stalled progress. Like people are still like, gotta follow this playbook for social. I write a blog post and then I create, you know, social content for it. I'm like, no, our belief in animals was like, you should be writing with distribution in mind. Ryan Law wrote, wrote an entire article about this, which is like, you know, when you're conceiving of it, my belief is that instead of thinking in terms of a blog post, you need to think of it in terms of a mini campaign. It's an idea. A topic is not a blog post. A topic is a campaign. It's an idea. And you should build the content around it. You're like, I have something to say, right? And then you build the sort of sub things you want to say about it. And then you come up with a distribution based on that thing, right? That's when you're really leaning into content marketing as a brand building tool. Yep. And doing it creatively. And that's, I think, when we're going to start to see innovation, that's when we're, well, innovation is kind of a dramatic word, but we're going to see content marketing evolve in the way that I think it can. Like, why do we still care about websites? I think websites are dead. They don't matter. The number of companies are like, nobody really goes for our website. It's like they're, same with like, you know, it's like websites and Facebook pages. Like no, the only reason any company has a Facebook page anymore, or sorry, and B2B SaaS. Sorry, I'm not speaking about consumer because I don't know yeah, that's yeah. not it's just because like you kind of have to, to show that you're actually alive, but like no one tends yep. to it, you know, same with Twitter accounts. Again, like in the early days when I started Twitter accounts were B2B SaaS companies were like kind of popular on Twitter. Like a lot of people followed them. They were kind of cheeky, a little more like human and creative. Now nobody reacts to anything a brand says on pretty much any platform. And none of them, I've seen Zapier try to use TikTok. And I think it's really cool what they're, it's like, they're, they're, it's clear they're experimenting there, but not a lot of other, I haven't seen a ton of other brands sort of experiment. So anyway, I think that there's tons of opportunity to do more, but I think that people are still following the same old playbooks. And so I really haven't seen a lot of very interesting work. I would say Wistia has done really cool work around, like they literally made a cartoon, you know, Wildbit did a comic strip. Like there's some people who are, you know, trying stuff. And that gives me life. But I think at the end of the day, especially right now, people are making fear-based responses because they don't know what's going to happen. And they're, you know, obviously having to lay people off. And I think this is the perfect time to get creative and experiment. But I think people's first response is double down on the things they know, because that's yeah, what yeah. you do in a time of uncertainty. And that's not, that's not brave. And that's not interesting. And I expect more of our industry, honestly. So there is my manifesto. I will die on that hill. <laughs> <laughs> well, I like that. I like that approach. I completely, I agree with that. Because at the end, you know, and it goes back to your early decisions, you know, you decided not to lay off, but you decided to kind of fully focus on helping your customers and like protect the company. Don't die, but actually get stronger and make sure that, you know, you, you stand out in what you do. And I think, well, the kind of the area that you came from, the content marketing area, is a huge role to play there. And I think it's indeed underplayed. Yeah. That was the whole, Walter said to the end, like, he was like, I always wanted a content marketer as a CEO. He's like, I think that's necessary for the agency, given that we were a content yeah, marketer. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah. 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 And so it was really important to him. It's like, you know, you can surround yourself with smart people who can help you, you know, operations, finance and all that stuff. But you know, you needed to think to be able to truly build a company that can serve our customers. I think having that background and even, you know, before I left, I realized I had even plateaued a little bit. I wasn't being innovative. I had gotten in this rabbit hole of like constant crisis over the past two and a half years. 
And I had plateaued the company and I needed to do better for our customers. And so, you know, we were sort of on the cusp of running a whole bunch of experiments, either with our customers, you know, trying to even doing some work pro bono to see, you know, because I realized like, why aren't we doing anything with video? Why, you know, why are we still focused on blog posts? Like, what am I, you know, so we were sort of at the beginning of making that evolution because even me, the person who's harping on this, you know, necessary evolution, I had gotten to that place too. And I was sort of, you know, trying to get out of that, right? Be brave again. How do you do that? You know, have you found any, I mean, what have you done to your, well, first of all, to recognize it. And then secondly, kind of to actively change it. That's hard. I mean, internally, it was easy because, you know, I think I've built my career on being a seeker and always wanting to grow and move forward. I think that's like sort of an archetype of someone who ends up running a company, right? Is like, yeah. you sort of never, you're never like, oh, this is nice. You're like, oh, this is cool. What I want to get here, right? So internally, it was quite simple. Once I saw it, I was like, We've got to get on this, right? But moving a company in a new direction is extremely challenging. And so that's where you really have to lean on, you know, your a couple of things. We were about 130 people around that this year. I think that was, yeah. So like approximately 130 people. Moving 130 people, 130 people is not a huge company, but it's big enough that it's not as simple as moving 50 people or 18 when I started. And so the first thing you have to do is you have to tell, you have to tell the story. First of all, you have to have a story. You have to think of, and you have to like write it down and know what that story is. And the story obviously has to be one that you truly believe in. So I first had to really understand in myself, like what I believed and what the vision was for the future. And it's very much like, you know, go to market for a product. It's like, what is the problem you're solving? And what is your vision for solving it? And that vision can't be tactical. It has to be bigger, right? Like our mission as a company was to make the internet a more helpful place. And so walking back on that, I was like, hey, we're not making it helpful anymore. We're plateauing. Like just, we're doing the same thing over and over. That's not making the internet more helpful. We're just, you know, and so it's like, figure out your problem statement, figure out your vision, tell a very succinct story, right? And first you have to sell that story to your leadership team and make sure they're on board and get their feedback, right? Your senior leadership, they are, because it's trickle down, right? I set the vision. I have to make sure the team, because they're going to be the ones that trickle down to managers. The managers, are gonna be, So you have, the story has to be clear. It has to be understandable. It has to be something that people are buying into so that every person at every level can sell it to the next person. They can believe in it. They've got to be enthusiastic about it. And so it's all, like you said, it's all about communication. It's all yeah, communication strategy. And so that's really, you know, what we did. The tactics were like, you know, get people on board, sell it to the company, give like, I think it was April where I gave this like rallying cry and people kept pointing back to it. They're like, that was the most inspiring all hands I've ever been to. Like, it's just cool. like, I got up there and I was like, cause you could tell I believed it. It wasn't like a thing I was making. I was like, this is it, you know, it's like my trident in the ground, you know, it was like lightning. <laughs> and then you just repeat it over and over yeah, exactly. and over in every different situation, even if it doesn't look like you've got a, your OKRs, right? So now you've got the communication all the way throughout the company. Then you've got to build a plan against it. So the tangible stuff, your OKRs, yeah. 
or the company, right? Even like whatever revenue goal we have, it's got to tie back to this idea. And then you just repeat it in every different context. Everything boils up to that same concept. The repetition is huge. When I didn't do repetition well, people thought I was like flip-flopping, right? They're like, oh, we don't know what's going on here. We, this and that. It is unbelievable how, especially in a remote company, it is for people to feel like things are going off the rails. You think you've repeated yourself enough. You haven't. It's you to do 10 times the amount of work to keep people on board because you don't have that sort of like in-person sort of, you know, so it's incredibly challenging, but it's pretty simple. Like, when you take a step back, right? It's all about your communication and repetition all the time. And that's the problem, you know, being able to take a step back. If you're in yeah. the middle, you know, and kind of the world is burning around you <laughs> and I mean, it's burning inside your business. It's why I sort of take issue with this whole concept of burnout. You know, people are just like, oh, I'm burnt out. Like life is hard. I'm like, oh, really? Like, you know, when people ask me, they're like, oh, I'm like, I've been burnt out. Like, incredibly frustrating. There was like, you know, people, there was a group of people who were like, Oh, you must've been so burnt out running a company. I'm like, that's not why, like, I didn't, my choices had nothing to do with burnout. I've been burnt out 50 times in the past two and a half years. Right. You have to move through that, especially as a leader. You're not allowed to be burnt out as a leader No, you have to get your ass through it and then step up on that, you know, rock and get other people excited. Like you can't just be excited yourself. You have to get an entire company who's exhausted, stressed, tired, burnt out, whatever. And you have to get them excited again over and over and over. And so, you know, I think that like our job is to continue to move through burnout. And it's like, it's why I sort of take issue with that concept in general is like people keep talking about it. Like it's an endpoint, but it's not. It's something you have to, it's something that challenges you to develop your internal resources and your internal strength even more to move through it, whether that's yeah. at your company at a different company, but like the hardest thing to do is to stay, especially when yeah, things true. are hard, but that's when you grow the most. And I think that I wish the conversation around burnout was more around that. It's like, how do we move through that to get to our next right place versus like, I'm burnt out and I'm just going to give up or quit or change, you know, yeah. do thing. it's like, like, you know, I think there's more opportunity, but that's a whole other podcast. Exactly. That's a whole other podcast. Indeed. What do you believe looking at hindsight, what has accelerated resilience of the business? Gosh, that is a wonderful question. What has accelerated resilience? I would say probably focus. It's the only thing like, you know, through every single challenge that we had, pandemic, great resignation, this year, like all the things of this year, which is sort of a combination of both the two past things in a weird way, in every situation where we were able to clearly identify the challenge at hand, create a plan and stay focused on it. It doesn't mean we didn't adapt, right? Focus doesn't mean you don't adapt to what happens or what you learn as you say focus, but you sort of, it's like this laser focus on the objective and then sort of consistent evaluation and analysis of what's happening as you, you know, find a solution, work towards that solution and then refine it. I would say like, that is what resilience was for us. It was this, you know, 
sobriety and fo- I, I, I keep coming back to the same thing, but that is what worked. It's like, okay, yeah. you know, every, so we set OKRs and we reevaluate them every quarter or we, we look at what happened and then we evaluate them every quarter as a leadership team. We're like, okay. And it's like our fundamental plan never really changes. It's sort of how we get there. Right. And so our revenue goal had to adapt this year and last year, but those, that's not really the plan. That's not like the things that you do aren't the plan. The plan is kind of like the overall health and success of the company. Right. And so it's like, and I think, you know, that has been throughout. Yeah. It's like that has been our, that's been our resilience. It's not about grand action all the time. Grand action actually kind of freaks people out. Big change freaks people out. So, you know, ideally, I'm not coming and making multiple, you know, big talks like that. And that's something I got wrong in the first year or two. Is like, I thought, well, because whenever a challenge would happen, like during the pandemic, it was like, you know, big rallying cries to the team. And that really worked. And so I thought that I had to keep doing that whenever there was a new challenge at hand. When really the team started to feel like, hey, you're ch-, like, it felt like we were changing a lot. Mm-hmm. And so it's really what I learned was it was more about that consistency and reminding people of like what the goal is that we're trying to accomplish and therefore establishing that focus that keeps people relaxed. And I think that's really kind of where we came to this year. Cause this year has been a year of like constant upheaval, like kind of mini, yeah. like micro world aggressions. Yeah, yeah, and- true. It was that sort of like consistent reminding people, this is why, and the woman that I brought on our VP of finance, Tara McGeechee, and she like, that was something she was really good at. She's like, nope, hold on. You're going like, you're going off the rail. She's like, this is what you're focusing on. And she was really able to be that glue for the team. Like, stop, stop, stop. You're going in another, here's what we're focusing on. This is what we're trying to do. And that was extremely like, I think I learned, I actually think I really learned to lean into that from her, if I'm being honest. Cool. Very good. Looking at the time, like one more question, I think. Let me see. At some point you said you misjudged misjudged the moment. Looking in hindsight now of what happened in the last two years, how you started to see what's important and what's less important? Or have you maybe already answered that? Yeah, no. I mean, so when I came into 2022, I got my leadership team together and I said, look, 2022 is not going to be the antidote to the past two years. It's going to be absolute garbage. I just don't know in what way yet. And as 2022's challenges started to reveal themselves, I got a little overconfident. I said, recession, whatever this garbage thing is that's happening, that st- we started to see early because we served the SaaS industry, we started to see these layoffs early. So we started to experience sort of an uptick in churn and we analyze the why, you know, why each customer leaves. And we started to see this uptick in budget and yeah, it was primarily budget. So we're like, okay, something's going on here. Right. And yep. there were a lot of layoffs and I was like, it's going to be fine. Don't worry. This has happened to us before. The yep. first thing that happens is they all lay off their agencies and their teams, but then the first thing they, the first people they hire back are their agencies. So I spent the first, you know, quarter telling people just relax. It's fine. Second quarter, I started to see how that wasn't really the case. 
Uh how like, even as I've left the number of agencies who have reached out to me, who've like slashed their growth goals in half this year, who are just trying to like, hang on. Right. So I really misjudged what was happening this year and how, you know, a flash in the pan moment of the pandemic is actually very different from an impending recession because as this volatility has dragged on, it's only increased the volume of fear responses. And also rightfully, there's also like sort of a correction happening, which, you know, overhired tech companies who, you know, and so I really didn't see the math equation for what it was. And I think I had the tools to see it. Like, I think if I had had a more objective mindset, I would have been able to see like, oh, this is going to be different. But I leaned on a little bit too mm-hmm. much confidence. And I think, you know, we were always, we've always run a very lean business. So like we were, you know, we're still in good shape or were, but I didn't see how much this was going to hurt and for how long. And I thought, oh, we'll just have a flat year. Maybe we'll add a million or two. No big deal. And it's like, no, the correction was (laughs) much deeper. Like this is the housing crisis for tech. Like, you know, like the amount that people were overhired and over it, like, It was just, and so, you know, that was a good learning for me is like, just because I had seen success in one way before it's like, I wasn't drinking my own Kool-Aid. I needed to look at this moment uniquely for what it was. And I was like, I've done this before. I know the playbook. And it's like, playbooks are death. Just never use them. They're terrible. You think it's efficiency and it's not like, it's just, So that was a good, I mean, that was a very sober learning for me and something that really kind of kept my ego in check, I think a little bit. So what should have been your response? Yeah, always, of course, in hindsight, but if you would do it, if you would, if it would happen right now with that knowledge. I should have looked at it with a, I go back to sobriety. I should have looked at it soberly as a unique moment. I shouldn't have compared it to the past. I should have said, what is going on right now? I should have applied a scientific curious mindset and asked more questions going in. I should have, you know, inquired, you know, and I look, I watch Bloomberg every day. I'm like watching the, like reading the new, like, you know, I'm kind of, but even still, you know, I think I needed to go in with a completely blank slate and yep. ask what's happening. Talk to other people. What do you see happening? Which yep. I did, but I think my, because I went in saying like, I would ask what they see is going on. I'm like, yeah, but it's going to be fine. Like I pre, I'd made a decision going in that I knew the outcome. And that was a big problem. I should yeah. have gone in like we went into the pandemic where we were like, what the hell's going on? You know, yeah, and go in that way, you are really more, good. you're more receptive to the information that you're gathering and you don't make pre, you know, you don't have preordained conclusions and thus whatever your solution is, has the potential to be more applicable to the moment. Well said. Thank you very much for this. So Thank many you. learnings here. Thanks. Thank you. And this ends my conversation with Devin. And I hope you enjoyed it. If so, please leave a review on iTunes. And if it inspired you, please share it with other tech entrepreneurs on a mission that you have in your network. Other than that, thank you for tuning into this podcast. I had the honor to speak to Devin Bramhall, former CEO of Animals. As said, the goal that I have in this podcast is twofold. Firstly, to inspire new forms of value creation by sharing compelling ideas and stories about the potential we can unlock when technology and people blend in the right way. And secondly, 
share experiences from tech entrepreneurs like you about what is required to create a remarkable software business and how to overcome the roadblocks to do so. Before I close, I have two more comments to make. If you know other tech entrepreneurs on a mission that have a story worth sharing, please send me an email at ton.dobby at valueinspiration.com. Building the momentum all starts with revealing the ideas. And that starts with you. And if you want to know more about my book, or you're interested in joining the Remarkable Effect tribe, please visit my website at www.valueinspiration.com. Thanks for tuning in. And you could do me a big favor by rating the podcast on iTunes or provide me with your feedback directly. I'll see you shortly on a new episode. That's what ransomware is all about. It's psychological pressure. Ransomware. When your computer's hacked into and your data held ransom. Attacks are on the rise and Russian gangs are making billions of dollars. The moment I got that message, I knew our greatest fears that we ever have are starting to come true. The post-Cold War era is over. Dot com, the hacking. A new season from Crowd Network with me, Katie Puckrick. Just search for dot com, that's D-O-T-C-O-M, and subscribe.